Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 30th, 2023, a Thursday. The news from Israel is depending, I guess, how you look at it, a little bit more encouraging. Uh, Netanyahu appears, at least, to be trapped, which probably pleases some of his critics. Uh, he's not the most popular man in the United States, or perhaps in Europe, or, or maybe even in Israel. Um, some people are seeing the protest movements against Netanyahu in Israel as transformative. The New Yorker are hoping that uh, this will perhaps reinvent Israel, make it a more tolerant place. But of course, most Americans misunderstand Israel's unrest. Maybe even Israel misunderstands Israel's unrest. Uh, lots of uh, op-eds suggesting that there's never going to be any democracy in Israel until the occupation ends. In other words, uh, just as the African-American issue in America dominates everything really in America. Same is true in Israel-Palestine. Uh, other pieces in The Guardian suggesting that Israel has never been a democracy and Israelis just simply need to face that fact, whatever happens with the judiciary. Another piece suggesting that protecting the Israeli judiciary doesn't or shouldn't allow it to launder war crimes against Palestinians. It's obviously an enormously complicated, controversial issue. Um, and my guest today has, uh, is a very brave man. He's written uh, a new book called The Shortest History of Israel and Palestine. It's part of the short his or shortest history series. But I think of all the shortest histories, the shortest history of Israel and Palestine from Zionism to Intifadas and the struggle for peace. Uh, is a very ambitious project. His name is Michael Scott Bauman. He's been uh, interested in the Israel-Palestine history and issue for many years, and he's joining us from London. Uh, Michael, congratulations on the book first. Thank um, you. Before we get to the book, though, what's your interpretation of, of what's happening at the moment in terms of these demonstrations against the judiciary, Netanyahu's partial surrender, um, and the broader issue of whether these protests might enable the development of a different kind of Israel? I, I think throughout its history, most Israelis have wanted their country to be both Jewish and democratic. But there is a tension there and I think members of Netanyahu's government in wanting to curb the judiciary are in the eyes of many Israelis threatening their democracy um, and their wish to be even more Jewish um, and give more prominence to, you know, religious nationalists. There is a threat to um, Israel's um, democratic credentials, definitely. Is it a democracy, though? Uh, I mean, or, or perhaps let me ask, re rephrase this question. You're probably about as impartial as one can get on all this stuff, and we're going to talk about the book. But can one ever 
be impartial? Is anyone impartial on this issue, which is so controversial, so divisive, and is probably the most insoluble political problem in the world over the last hundred years? I know. I'm, I'm sure no one can come, claim to be completely impartial. Um, but in writing my book, I made a point of using very varied sources for my evidence, Israeli and Palestinian, as well as European and American. I was very keen to present personal testimony from both sides and hoping that the facts speak for themselves. But I agree, you've always got the choice then, which facts. Um, and some people yeah. might suggest you sound a very pleasant English gentleman. Um, <laughs> But of course, the Brits were there in the beginning. They caused the whole problem. A few weeks ago, we had a show with Jonathan Wilson, um, Anglo-American Jewish novelist on whether or not Jew Palestine was a Jewish state in waiting during the 1930s. He, he wrote a novel about it. Um, how can an Englishman, uh, Mike, how can an Englishman even dare to, to, to be... Uh, the arbiter in this horribly bloody, divisive struggle, given well, that you are the guys who created the problem in the first place. Well, I wouldn't say I'm attempting to be the arbiter. Yeah, and just to jump in here, I obviously yeah, you're okay. not, no, I I'm not blaming you for what happened in <laughs> over Balfour or the 1930s or anything well, like that. Britain does have a major responsibility, both historic and contemporary. And I think that's one reason why we need to address it. And um, our, our government signally fails to address it. I mean, our, our motives for the Balfour Declaration were not altruistic. They weren't primarily to provide a safe haven for the Jews. It, they were dr driven by the exigencies of war in 1917. But and then Britain, during the years of the British mandate, did privilege the Jewish community. It's undoubtedly the case. Well, before we get to the book, just explain your background and, and, and why you have spent many hours and many years studying this struggle, this problem, this history. I've been interested for a long time. Um, I wrote a small topic book for high school students oh, about 40 years ago and have remained interested ever since but it's particularly in the last nine years since I retired from full-time teaching. Um, I, I did an MA at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. I've been four or five or six times to Israel-Palestine. I'm interested because it is such a live issue, because it is such a volatile part of the world. Um, people do have such many people do have very fixed opinions and these are all reasons why I decided I, I want to address it and having written for high school students I was very keen to write for the general reader which is who this book is aimed at. I'm not sure if there's such a thing Mike as the general reader but for, for this particular issue but we shall see. Uh, last year we had the right-wing um, Israeli Zionist uh, actress Noah Tishby on the show. She's written a book called 
Israel a simple guide to the most misunderstood country on earth. And it's simple for Tishbi because she basically denies there's such a thing as a Palestinian people. Mm. Um, even the, even the, the title of your book, The Shortest History of Israel and Palestine, will uh, piss off some people, probably some, some Israelis like Tishbi. Um, how do you define Palestine, Mike? Well, it's it's a land. I think I today I think of the occupied Palestinian territories, the West Bank and Gaza. It's a land. It's a people. I do see them as a nation, but they haven't yet been granted uh, the rights to self determination in the way that Israel um, has been. But I still see that I still see it as a land. I still see it as a people. I still see it as a nation. I am a Zionist, though. If 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 you by that one means recognizing the right of Israel to exist. In well, you're this. everything, but it's very convenient. It's easy for you to be everything from London. I mean, okay. can one really be everything? Can one believe in the idea or recognize the notion of a Palestinian people and still be a Zionist? How could that be conceivable? Yes, and I know many Israelis. I, I know I've been involved in meetings and webinars with retired but very senior Israeli people who've been ambassadors and politicians who believe, still believe in the two-state solution, believe there are two peoples, two nations. Each should have a land um, with prescribed borders. Um, I think one can believe in both. We can it's believe very it. Hard. You can it on the internet. It's very convenient. I'm not sure if it's going to change anything. Let's talk. No, a I, bit I, about, agree. I agree. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the book, the, sh the shortest history of Israel and Palestine. So, going back to the British occupation, the period around the First World War, this place called Palestine, this geography, that's undeniable. Hmm. Was it united people, Mike? I mean, who were? the people, the so-called Palestinians who lived in Palestine? Well, they were about 90% um, Muslim, 10% um, Christian. The Palestinians, oh, there the, the was throughout history, has been a very small number of Jewish people um, living in this land, um, preserving their religious beliefs and rituals while embracing Arab culture, if you like, often speaking Arabic and dressing like Arabs. But the, the vast majority were Muslim and Arab, um, a smaller percentage of Christians and a very tiny percentage of Jews who'd been there for hundreds of years. And Palestine was a part of the Ottoman Turkish Empire up until 1970. And so for people trying to imagine what this place might have been like before the European Jews showed up, is the closest equivalent Lebanon? Or I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, can, can I just say that by the time of the First World War, um, several tens of thousands of Jewish people had left largely Eastern Europe and come to Palestine to settle. And, and they hadn't been prevented from doing so by the Ottoman Turkish rulers. So we have the outlines of a, a national struggle, if you like, by the time of the First World War. So there were two, would it be fair to say, Mike, that there were two kinds of European Jews showing up even then? 
the left socialists, people who denied even the idea of a Jewish state, and then Zionists, and perhaps a third party, hardcore religious Jews. I, I, I certainly think there were a number who were seeking a safe haven, who weren't really interested in establishing a, a Jewish, didn't necessarily believe in the Jewish nation, certainly not in the Jewish state. Um, but I think most of those arriving in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, Ashkenazi Jews um, were wanting a homeland of their own, a Jewish state, as the writer Thomas Herzl had spoken of. I think the majority did envisage. Yeah, there's a consistent narrative amongst progressive critics of Israel that this represented the last gasp of European colonialism, that the idea of a Jewish state was invented by a European Jewish community in, in Europe using the ideology of nationalism. Uh, so what the, the European Jews did in Israel was no different from what the Belgians did in Congo or the, the British did in India. Well, what's your take on that? Uh, certainly late 19th century nationalism was very fashionable. And just as the, the French wanted a the French nation and were wedded to that. I, I think many Jews wanted a Jewish nation and the vast majority wanted it to be in their historic homeland, um, Eretz Israel, biblical Israel. Um, so this sounds to me, Mike, as if there's this huge European problem, obviously a lot of it generated by the anti-Semitism within the Tsarist Empire and other parts of East Central Europe, Mm-hmm. An ideology of nationhood, which was developed in Europe. And this got transposed into a, uh, a geography which was entirely, shall we say, innocent of any responsibility for the experience of European Jews over the last five or six hundred years in Europe. Is that a fair analysis? I think it is. And I think many Jews had had lived, I'm not an expert on this, but had lived fairly securely in great Arab cities of Cairo and Baghdad and Damascus for hundreds of years. I'm sure there was there were elements of anti-Semitism, yes. But um, I, I think in many of those Arab cities, Jews probably felt more secure than it might have been in many Western cities. Your book uh, goes from Zionism to Intifadas and the struggle for peace. We don't have enough time to cover everything. But where are the most controversial uh, chapters or moments in this history? What are the issues that no one agrees on? I suppose 1947-1948, in particularly 1948. And of course, we are just coming up to the 75th anniversary. And there, just to be clear, Mike, this was the first war of independence. Yes, this, this was the year in which the state of Israel was established. And this was the year in which well nigh three quarters of a million Palestinians um, found themselves exiled um, from their homelands from what was to be the new Jewish state. And Palestinians know the events of these years as the Nakba or catastrophe. But of course, it's a glorious episode 
for the Israelis. It's their establishment of their homeland. And after the persecution that had gone on in Europe, yes, massive support in the Western world, certainly, for the establishment of this homeland. So the debate is about whether or not this was essentially a, a terrorist war, a legitimate war, many accusations, counter-accusations of war crimes, of mass killings, particularly uh, by the Jews uh, of, of Palestinian villages and entire villages, which is um, especially depressing given what happened to the Jews in Europe. Yes. Yeah. I mean, no, no claim that the suffering was on anything like the scale or intensity of the Holocaust, of course. Um, but I think many Jews were very fearful that their new state would be insecure. And I think that's one reason why they were keen for as many Arabs as possible to leave what was to be the new state of Israel um, so that it was a majority Jewish state. There are many... Um... Many post-colonial civil wars, uh, but it's, in that sense, perhaps even the 1948 war wasn't that unusual. Uh, but I wonder whether the most problematic thing, even before 1948, was the fact that the original Balfour Declaration and the first Jews who settled in Israel as Zionists in 1918 and after the First World War, they were dealing with an entirely different world and sense of themselves and consciousness as Jews to the those that came in in 1948 given the final solution and the Nazis in Europe is this the historical contradiction which makes this problem so impossible to not only fix but even address amongst so many people um I mean, e even in the years before the First World War, Jews were still escaping persecution, the pogroms. Obviously, what happened in the Second World War was far, far worse. Um, but certainly, I, I think in the West, we are so, so conscious, rightly so, of the horrors of the Holocaust and our European responsibility, if you like, I mean, we feel that more keenly than I think people in Asia or Africa would, for understandable reasons. Well, we have we're, we were closer to it and perhaps had more responsibility. Yes. Um, hmm. What about the British occupation, Mike? We, we will come back to 1948. You've um, conveniently, and I'm teasing you here, you glossed over that one. No one thinks of the British very fondly, the Israelis or the Palestinians. Did they manage to screw up everyone and everything in the 20 or 30 years that they occupied this godforsaken country? Ooh, um, I think the British probably did a fair amount for the development of infrastructure, um, education, basic health. I, 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 I'm sure there were some benefits, even if they accrued more to some communities than others. Um, I don't. I don't think it was a complete disaster. Yeah, was the problem perhaps with the British, in all seriousness, that that they tried to be too fair and they managed to offend? Not offend. That's a 
the wrong word. They managed to um, to make everyone enemies. Had they taken a side, it might have been simpler. Um, well, there are big differences between the views of the British on the ground and those back in London. Many of those, the military authorities and the civilian authorities in Palestine, um, felt that immigration, Jewish immigration, should be curbed more than it was. Many felt that, understand that the, the Arabs just couldn't reconcile themselves to the Balfour project, uh, to the Balfour Declaration. Well, why should they? Why should they? And of I mean, course, they had the, no responsibility for the persecution of, of European Jews. Indeed. And the terms of the Balfour Declaration were written into the, the mandate, the League of Nations mandate. In fact, they were strengthened. They, Britain was given the mandate to encourage um, settlement and colonization of Palestine. And Britain was given the mandate to liaise with a Jewish agency, but no mention of um, any body representing the Arabs of Palestine. And, of course, the, the British resisted demands for a, an elected legislature on the grounds that it would be bound to have an Arab majority. And that Arab majority, you know, were couldn't be reconciled to the, the Balfour Declaration. There was a famous book, uh, Mike, The Arab Awakening, about the development of Arab nationalism in and around this time. Was there a Palestinian awakening? Was there a sense of nationhood amongst these this people who lived in this land? There's an age-old debate on whether or not Palestinians thought of themselves as Palestinian. The, um, the Arab peoples of the region have been torn historically between uh, local identities and a broader Arab identity. In terms of your book, in this shortest history, when do we see the development of what we might call a Palestinian consciousness? Okay. I mean, I think in the years immediately after the First World War, most Palestinians probably wanted to be part of a greater Syria, a Syria that included Palestine, maybe Lebanon. Once they realized that was not to be. And that was a threat. Of course, at the time that Syria and Lebanon were occupied by the French, the French and the British carved up the, this part of the world, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was another classic colonial ruse or crime. But anyway, go on. Yeah. And, and once with the French having been given the mandate over Syria and the, British, the French keen to take control of Syria, I think Palestinians realized they weren't there wasn't much hope of becoming part of a greater Syria. So I, I, I think we, the, the, the emergence of Palestinian nationalism, particularly in the 20s, probably even more so in the 30s, particularly with the speeded up immig immigration uh, of Jews fleeing Nazi Germany. Um, so I think the development of Palestinian national, nationalism comes in stages. And then in the 50s and 60s, I guess it emerges in the form of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, but that's, that's after the creation of the State of Israel. So 1948 is, in your view at least, a real flashpoint that no one can agree on anything. What's 
your analysis, Mike, uh, of this period in terms of your shortest history of Israel and Palestine? Did did the Jews of Israel, did they commit the kind of war crimes that they've been accused of? Um, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not aware of the term war crimes being used to describe... I have just invented that one. Okay. <laughs> I'll get into trouble for that one. Okay, I mean, I mean certainly... Israelis were they were crimes committed during war, so they were yes, yeah. I'm sure in the years leading up to the establishment of the state of Israel, I'm sure there were crimes committed by both sides, atrocities committed by both sides. Yeah, we always have this both siderism, Mike. But the point is, particularly from the Palestinian perspective, is that the Israelis were the ones with the military power, the guns. So both siderism doesn't always work here, does it? Having well, I would say at the at the beginning of that war, that first war of independence, um, I, I I don't think Israel was militarily particularly strong. I mean, she had she had several thousand um, fighters who who uh, gained military experience in fighting in the British Army in the Second World War, and during the course of the war, the Israelis were able to access more arms particularly from Russian arms from the Czech, the new Czech state. Um, so, yes, towards the latter end of the war, the Israelis were militarily stronger. And the Arab forces which invaded were um, ill-coordinated, ill-led, ill-disciplined. And the Israelis, of course, were fighting for their very survival. Well, so were the Palestinians, I mean, in retrospect. Lots of yes. debate as well, Mike, about... Um... This word terrorism, you brought it up with respect to the PLO, many accusations that the Israelis themselves were terrorists in the 1930s. And in fact, the kind of terrorism that was developed by the Zionists in the 30s is now metastasized into Bibi Netanyahu and, 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 and right-wing Israeli society. Is there any truth to that in your view? You know, I'm very wary of using the term terrorism but certainly for any side because you met you used it earlier in respect to the palestinians uh well uh, cer certainly i mean the israeli attack when sorry the, the attack by jewish militants on the british military headquarters in which many civilians were killed and that includes jews as well of arabs this was the Irgun, right yes in the king of king david hotel i mean that's undeniably in act of terrorism, if you like. I mean, civilians are very much the target. Um, yes, I, I dare say some would say that there's a form of state terrorism. Some would say that, which has been implemented by certain forces in Israel. Yes. So, for better or worse, Israel wins the War of Independence in, eight, in, in 48. You see the creation of a Zionist state. Um, in terms of your shortest history of Israel and Palestine, was there any opportunity ever, Mike, for a peace? It always seems as if every peace is more elusive than the previous one, and they always fail. When was the moment between 1948 and, say, I don't know, 19, the end of the 20th century, where there was any conceivable opportunity for there to be a peace where we would have the establishment of both a state of Israel and a state of Palestine? Well, I suppose 
the signing of the Oslo Accords in 1993. Negotiations had taken place away from the glare of publicity in neutral Norway. And we were all very surprised. And the vast majority of people felt very optimistic when we saw the photographs of this handshake on the White House lawn uh, between Yasser Arafat, leader of what the Israelis had previously called a terror organization, and Yitzhak, Shem, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli. Yeah, it wasn't Shamir. Uh, no, no, Rabin. Uh, Rabin. No, and he's in your You know, the Israelis recognized the PLO as a representative of the Palestinian people. The PLO formally recognized Israel's right to exist in peaceful, in peace and secure boundaries and agreed to renounce the use of violence. And there was to be elections in the Palestinian territories for a Palestinian authority, which would take over some control over education, health, etc. And most of us felt this was a terrific breakthrough. I think the trouble is that Israel largely got what it wanted in 1993 in the sense of recognition of its right to exist. And um, yes, I think above, above all that, felt they, they felt, felt secure. They felt safe. Was the there, uh, did Israel go into Oslo knowing that it could claim recognition and not really... Enable yes, yes, the creation yes. of a Palestinian they, state. They did, because in fact, in 1988, Yasser Arafat had effectively rec had recognized Israel's right to exist. But what, what was agreed at Oslo was the big issues, like any borders between Israel and Palestine, and what to do about the settlements, and whether Palestinians should have a capital in East Jerusalem. All of that was to be discussed over the next five years. And if you like, the extremists on both sides sabotaged. Do you think, though, that the Israelis entered into Oslo in good faith? I mean, they were the ones with power. This was not a negotiation of equals. No, that is one of the main problems. And although I think it was recognized that there should not be any changes on the ground, pending final status negotiations, Israel did carry on building settlements in the West Bank and in Gaza at a, a terrific pace. How, how much responsibility, we talked about the British, who, of course, screwed up as only the British could do nobly, but the Americans have also massively screwed up here. How much responsibility to the this catastrophe, this tragedy, and particularly the failure of Oslo can be attributed to the, the naivety or perhaps the ultimately pro-Israeli policies of the Israel, of the Americans? I think it is ultimately pro-Israeli policy of the Americans. I mean, don't forget, Britain, like America, has vetoed almost every attempt by the United Nations to implement, implement international law. And it's international law, of course, which says settlements, civilian settlements in the occupied territories are illegal. I mean, Britain has often followed America. So I think although America might have been seen by many Palestinians as a reasonably honest broker, uh, Oslo, now that, that's a controversial statement in itself, certainly later on, they were came to be distrusted. 
and couldn't be seen as honest broker. It's um, very depressing, Mike, isn't it? That it is. It is. Particularly, you know, much of and 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 obviously, uh, you you deal with the assassination of Rabin after the the Oslo. Um, it, it seems as if the Jewish terrorists got their way after Oslo. They assassinated the peacemaker and destroyed the peace. Is, is that a fair analysis? Yes, and of course, what we hear a lot about the bomb suicide bombing campaign launched by Hamas in the mid-90s, we don't often hear of the occurrence of the Israeli, American-born Israeli settler who walked into a mosque in early 1994 in Hebron and killed 27, or was it 29, Muslim worshippers at prayer. We don't often hear about um, Baruch Goldstein, but certainly soon after that followed a much intensified campaign by Hamas, feeling that, you know, the settlers were armed and the Palestinians weren't being protected. Um, yes, um, it's Oslo unraveled pretty quickly. And How would you compare Hamas with um, the Palestinian Liberation Organization? Um, were they the next inevitable step, given the failure of the PLO to realize a peace? I think Hamas would say, <clears throat> we're not going to enter into any peace until the occupation's ended. I think they would look at what happened at Oslo and see there was no guarantee of a Palestinian state, no guarantee of the end of occupation. Yeah, but if you end the occupation, then you end the state. What does that even mean, end the occupation? Well, end, end the, 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 the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. I mean, I, I personally think Hamas would, would recognize the state of Israel, but they're not prepared to do so formally until Israel has withdrawn its troops from the West Bank. Israelis, though, are fearful of a renewed intifada like the second one. I understand that. Israelis are very af afraid that if they, they give way, that the Palestinians would simply use the West Bank as a launch pad for further attacks on Israel. I'm sure there are many Israelis that do believe that. Mike, uh, your book is called The Shortest History of Israel and Palestine. Um, perhaps a more appropriate title would be The Shortest History of Palestine, given that Israel seems to have get longer and longer or bigger and bigger or more and more powerful. How conceivable, given the policy on the West Bank, on settler policy, how conceivable now is a Palestinian state? In other words, this history of Palestine, has it come to an end? There may be Palestinians, but Palestine itself is pretty much dead, isn't it, today in March 2023? It's, it's very hard to see a Palestinian state emerging alongside that of Israel given that we now have what in reality is a one-party state of Israeli rule from the Mediterranean to the River Jordan. So it the Jewish terrorists have won out. Is that fair? Um, I, I, no, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I mean, I think inherent in the Zionist... I'm putting words into your mouth, Mike. You'll get assassinated tomorrow. <laughs> I'll get assassinated. We'll both get assassinated. We can do it together. 
I think that inherent in the Zionist project has always been, you know, a desire to extend Jewish control over all of Eretz Israel, biblical Israel. Of course, Israelis refer to the West Bank as Judea and Samaria. And certainly this present government sees that as essential parts of the um, state of Israel. I mean, Israeli school textbooks don't any longer, I believe, don't show the border of the 1960s, pre-1967. Can the Americans do anything, or is this a problem now that even the Americans can't solve? We've we've had so many shows about Israel. I did one with the Daniel Sokach, uh, who has written a book, Can We Talk About Israel? A Guide for the Curious, Confused, and Conflicted. He's certainly curious, confused, and conflicted. A classic American Jewish liberal who's who won't come out exactly against Israel and yet bends himself into all sorts of unnatural shapes. What can the Americans do to actually fix this? Because I think a lot of people are just sick of it. It's boring. We need to move on. Why can't we just get rid of this, Mike, move on to something else, maybe address Cyprus or, or other well, you, you, you sometimes the British government, you sometimes hear the British government say, we want both sides to come together and negotiate. Yeah, I mean, and that's like, you know that song. We've heard that for 50 exactly. or 100 years. I mean, the asymmetry is so so great militarily politically diplomatically economically and besides which one side at present the israelis have, have no desire to negotiate with the palestinians let alone they have no, not any no desire no reason they don't care why and would they want no to... reason yes yes and meanwhile they slowly but surely have colonized practically all the land made it almost increasingly impossible to actually live there, yeah. which only drives the Palestinians to more and more frustration, mm. rage. Mm. Mm. So what can the Americans do, Mike? Well, I certainly think the Americans, like the British, can recognize Palestine. Now, that's not going to make any immediate difference on the ground, but it's certainly recognizing, you know, Palestine's right to so the Americans haven't done right self-determination. I mean, they have never recognized Palestine. The Americans will they? No, haven't they? They haven't. I always thought they, in theory, right. they had. I think 137 countries have recognized Palestine, but Britain hasn't, and I'm pretty sure America hasn't. And that would at least be an acknowledgement of equal rights, uh, the right to self-determination, national self-determination for both parties. That would be a start. I mean, it has to be pressure on Israel because she's so, so, so much more powerful. But as you say, what reason does Israel have to negotiate? She feels she can manage the conflict. Now, I, would, I wouldn't say that's the same of the current regime. I think they are dead set on um, extending control. And I think they are dead set on annexation. Just so, as the European Jewish problem became the problem of the Palestinians, won't the Palestine problem eventually become the problem of somewhere else, maybe a Gulf state, Jordan, Syria, maybe even somewhere in Africa? I, I, I can't see you know, parallels anywhere else, I have to say. But there are refugee camps still. Yes, yep. Oh, yeah, there's five today. There are five million UN registered Palestinian refugees in, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan. And of course, there are refugee camps within Gaza and the West Bank. 
And these are, you know, basic health and education is provided by UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Works Administration. And they continue to do so, I guess, in recognition of the fact that the UN hasn't yet been able to establish separate Palestinian and Israeli states, which is what they originally intended to do in 1948. Mike, finally, I'm a very brave man to write this, the shortest <laughs> history of Israel and Palestine. Um, it's the most miserable history, isn't it? I mean, it's so depressing that we humans have screwed up so massively on this. I, I agree. But I have friends, um, Jewish and Muslim, Israeli and Palestinian, and I know them as people, and I just, we have to somehow... It goes without saying, we've been hearing that for 100 years. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult to see a resolution. I agree. At the moment, perhaps more distant than ever. Um, but I don't think we should just throw up our hands um, and, and give up. I think particularly it is incumbent on the Western powers, I think, to make more effort. Um, yes, but Israel is, is seen as a close ally in, in, the, in an otherwise volatile part of the world. That's the view of many in America and Britain, I think. Um, Britain, like America, has a lot of trade with Israel. We've, I think Britain is in the process of signing a new trade deal. Um, it, is, it is very hard to see a resolution 